draw your attention to the little flyer here this morning. Front page banner says, do you have your tickets for the Truth Project? Uh, Right-hand column top says, Truth Project, coming soon. Don't miss it. Dr. Del Tackett. And those things tie together. Uh, That is on September the 27th. It's a simulcast training event that we will host here in our sanctuary on that day. And I just want to take a few minutes and talk about the Truth Project so that it's clear in our minds and we understand what we're doing a little bit more. The Truth Project is a tool that's been provided by Focus on the Family and others who have put it together for us and for, in fact, the world. Uh, it's, it's something we're going to participate alongside of and in for the next 14 weeks. Next week is going to last from now, if you will, in September 27th specifically, all the way to the week before Christmas. And the reason for doing this is it's a tool to help disciple you and me, of course. I leave myself out. I want some. But it's a tool to help disciple you unto Jesus, disciple you more closely into his life. Also, as they declare openly, it's, a, it's for a point of transformation. They're concerned with transforming individual lives and having a flooding of transformation come in the body of Christ. That's why they put this together. Uh, It's more than just lessons to attend. And for those of you that don't know what the Truth Project looks like, and I apologize, I could have brought down a box and held it up and showed you. It's it's 12 consecutive uh, lessons on DVD curriculum, if you will, that deal with biblical worldview. Having a a, a view of life that uh, comes from God's perspective, a view of life that is uh, built by the Bible, not by just uh, any uh, other random act of putting your belief system together. It's a uh, systematic development of that biblical worldview that will that if you get your hands wrapped around this, can literally bring transformation to the way you live. Not, you know, it's not just all of us have been gone to class, right? We've been in classes. And sometimes we just think if we just get our name on the attendance roster and we're there for, you know, 10 out of 12 attendances, they'll pass the class. And attendance becomes the issue of showing up for duty and uh, getting your name on the roster. But I'm going to tell you that these next 12 weeks, it's 14 starting today, but uh, we'll minister again next weekend, and then the following weekend, the 27th, will be the training, and we'll be right out of the chute on the 27th on Saturday. The messages in the pulpit will coincide with the lessons that we're going to be going through together in our cell groups in the following week. So we're going to compact this thing together so everything's moving in the same direction for you. And I should do a commercial that, you know, the other side of this sheet lists our cells. And I wonder if I might just ask our lighthouse keepers, our, our cell leaders, to just stand for a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just stand. These are people that are going to be, uh, that are listed on these sheets. Yeah, bless them in Jesus' name. Bless them. Thank you. And every one of them has room in their group for you, right? Yes. Amen. We have room for you. And... Um, so we'll be ministering on the Saturday and Sunday celebrations in tandem, in theme with what the, what the following week's lesson will be. And then in the cells, we'll be having our regular four W's. We practice these four W's in our cell every week. We have a welcome time where people get to know each other and visitors are welcome. And, and a little icebreaker question is put together and, so that you can get to know each other. Hopefully we're using those. And then there's a worship time where we center ourselves on Jesus. And then there's a word section. And that's where we're going to put in a DVD and hit play and let Del Tackett and the team there from Focus on the Family begin to instruct and give us the ins- not just the information and inspiration, but we're going to pray that revelation will come to the information that's given because we live in a society that says information leads to transformation. If we get more knowledge, we'll, we'll just be better people. Not true. I mean, you're tired of getting knowledge. I mean, you know enough already. Not that you're smart enough, but isn't the information kind of an overload these days? Anybody here feel like you've been in Texas? Huh? This week, anybody been in Texas? You know, just I'm, and I'm just picking a random current event. I mean, we've got this gigantic 
I mean, this is the biggest hurricane mass I've ever seen. It covered the whole Gulf, you know, just in cloud cover and coming and roaring in there to Texas. And You know, after you, you zero in on all the information that's coming, and that ties to something else, and you look and news and off you go, and the next thing you know, you're overwhelmed with information. We don't need a lot more information. What we need is transformation. And when information from the Bible comes to us, and the Holy Spirit anoints it, and it brings revelation into our heart, not into our thinking, but into our heart, into our spirit, man, that will lead to transformation. It will change the way you see and live life. I see the biblical worldview, and um, Floyd and I spend a lot of time talking about this, and I really appreciate Pastor Floyd speaking into my life, but you know, it's like having a, a screen for everything you do. It's like having a, you know, if you, if you had a big bucket and a, a screen and some of you contractors do this, you have to do this, you know, you're scooping sand and dirt and rock into that and you're, you're shaking out the stuff, you know, so that you don't get the big chunks in your pile. Most of us can relate to that even in the sandbox, right? We were there. And you're sifting out the stuff you don't want. And what if, what if you could, every conversation you got into, every large decision you ever had to make, whether it was buying a car or sending the kids to school or, or homeschooling or, or how to parent better or what job to take, what if you could, in the moment that the question arose, you could reach into your pocket and pull out that screen and hold it up like a little decoder, you know, the secret cereal box message. And you had to get in and hold it over the thing so you could read the words that were hidden. What if you had something like that that you could put in place and say, how do I respond to this moment? Even as simply as when you're pulling down the off-ramp on the freeway and the guy standing at the sign. How do you respond to the very elemental daily confrontations that we go through and say, you know, you've got something in there that Jesus told you to help the poor. But you've got other screens and grids and information that's slamming into that all at once and you're saying, but not this time. Not this guy, because I don't know. And maybe, you know, you know what I'm saying? Simple things. Say, should we or shouldn't we invest in this place? Should we or shouldn't we move to here? Pull up the grid. Person comes to you, asks for something. Can you help me? And he reaches, wait just a second, you pull up, you screen that and say, what does the Bible say? How would I respond? And I want one of those things. Amen? And that's what the Truth Project is going to help you with. Building a screen, a grid, a model that's from Scripture that will help you view everything in life and help you make greater, stronger, more biblical, more God-pleasing decisions. Boy, if I haven't sold the Truth Project by now, I'm convincing myself that I want this. Their theme sentence I wrote in my notes, Do you really believe... This is from the Truth Project. Del Taggett loves to pose this question. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? <laughs> now, I'm going to wait 12 weeks for him to define that for me. <laughs> That's a brain twister. <laughs> yeah. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? So, each weekend from September 27th through just the week ahead of Christmas, we'll be ministering along these lines. And then in the cell, in the cells, the lighthouses, throughout the week, we'll be reinforcing that for you. I just want to encourage, uh, and you got to meet some people this morning, hopefully get the ice, you know, broken and say, look, I need to be in one of those groups. We can expand them, we can make them bigger, not multiply them, that's our goal, multiply cells. And penetrate the community, but we're going to need to haul everybody we can to come to those things and be in there and get that information so that at the end of 12 weeks, you've got a better screen, grid, filter system to walk through life with. And we have 65 people. Come on in. We have 65 people registered for this event now, and we've got room for about 100. So if you're not registered, you go online to thetruthproject.com. There's a place to you know click in there. You do have to buy a, a registration ticket. But the beauty of that is if you buy the registration and you're able to come to the simulcast training event where all of our cell leaders are coming to that to be trained on how to, to administer the curriculum, administer the, the Truth Project every week. And they'll, everybody's registered gets a set of the DVDs for your own home library. And they're worth about $79. So it's a, it's a great bargain as far as prices go. 
for what you're getting. But if you can't come to the simulcast or you don't want to sign up, get into a cell and get the benefit of that information as the cell leaders give it out, okay? Uh, but you can get in, truthproject.com. Feel like an infomercial just happened? <laughs> I do. But, it's, but it has a purpose this morning, and here's, here's what it is. I'm looking at this. This is a big effort for us as a church. You know, to ask everybody to come along the same, get in the same stream, roll out the same information. Do you know that when you signed up for the Truth Project, if you're not aware of this, uh, leaders, when you signed up, you are being prayed for by name daily by the staff of Focus on the Family and others around the world who have already been through the Truth Project are praying for you as a leader. That's pretty cool. This whole project is unwritten by intercessory prayers, you were talking about, Alan, so that those who are ministering it out will have more than just a, a you know, classroom setting. There will be a moment where they can produce an atmosphere in the spirit where revelation can break and people's lives are transformed. So if we're looking for transformation, they're looking for transformation. My question to you this morning and the title of this message is, how can we prepare our hearts for transformation, if we know that's the goal that's coming, if we know that's where we're headed, is there a way that I can prepare my heart for transformation? Let's answer that question this morning. First, we have to define what it is. What is transformation? Here's a couple of dictionary definitions. A complete change, usually into something with an improved appearance, or usefulness. So if you were going for transformation, would you want the usefulness or the change in appearance? <laughs> How about both? <laughs> I could use a new look. A complete change, usually into something with an improved appearance or usefulness. The word transform, the three primary definitions from Merriam-Webster. To change in composition or structure... Second, to change the outward or appearance of. And third, to change in character or condition. And then there's a, on the end of that it says convert. We're not talking about converting to Christianity. Hopefully we've been there and we've done that. We've given our hearts to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and Jesus is not your Savior, I want to hopefully give you that invitation toward the end of our time together to invite Him into your heart because He is the transformer of all transformers. He changes us. If, if, if you're visiting here and you don't know Jesus, you'd be surprised to know what the people around you used to be like. <laughs> hey, man. Anybody? Yeah, we go, oh, man, you should have known them. I mean, there's some major changes sitting around here today. We are some transformed people, and we're grateful for the love of Jesus doing that for us, and it's available to you. But transform something implies a major change in form, nature, or function. Maybe all three. So transformation becomes an act or a process or an instance. And I want you to hear those words, an act, a process, or an instance of transforming or being transformed. It's that moment or those series of moments, the process, the preparation for it to come. And then when it comes, there is this complete change of a person's life. The word in the Greek that we might refer to uh, from the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Don't be conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that's the old King James Version. It says, Be ye transformed. Paul's writing, and he's making it almost like a command. Hey, be transformed. Be ye transformed. It's emphatic. You need this change. And the word is metamorpho, metamorpho, excuse me, and uh, you certainly could relate to metamorphosis in that. That's where we get the word. Be transformed in Romans 12.2. Here's the definition. It says the, oblig the obligation being to undergo a complete change which under the power of God will find expression in character and conduct. If I undergo this transformation that's available from God, 
then I'm going to go through a complete change which by his power in me will find expression, outward expression, inward expression as well, but outward expression to others even in character and conduct. You're going to be different and you're actually going to act differently because of what's inside of you. Let me sum it up in three words that we can all relate to. Metamor- meta, I want to get this, forget the Greek. Metamorphosis. That's a tough word for me. Three words. The worm flies. The worm flies. Come on. The butterfly. The worm. I'm the worm. Okay, in this sentence, the worm flies. Transformation. Chrysalis. Metamorphosis. That little wiggly worm, you know, finds his way around, then he disappears and you see him hanging in the tree. And then after a certain period of time, out comes this metamorphosis. This is transformation. This is a God event that nobody can, we can't duplicate that. I mean, we're doing a lot with science and stem cells and going to the moon or whatever it is we do, but we'll never, ever be able to do what God does. And God demonstrates in such a simple way that the worm, you know, this crawling on the ground kind of a life that I used to have has taken on wings and beauty that nobody else can give me other than Christ. And so if we're looking for this kind of transformation in our life that is available by the power of God and through the the process of God in our lives, how can we begin to prepare for it? See, I anticipate 12 weeks of... of, uh, the Truth Project, leading to weekly transformation in somebody's life. I, and I'm going to offer in the services when we gather a couple of minutes each time. Say, okay, what did you get this week? Now I'm talking specifically from the curriculum and from your cell group. What has God spoken to you? And what has transformed? I watched the first couple of these as a, because when we were getting, getting the information on it, they gave us a couple of segments so we could look through it. And uh, I, I was amazed. Personally, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I knew that. Okay, I knew that. And I'm being the big shot. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, I'm good. I'm good on that. But there were places where Del Tacker would say, so. And I'd go, oh, my. I never really saw it that way. I know that truth. But something dropped in and went, <gasps> life's going to be different now. I've got something here that I've never had. And as a Christian for a long time, I mean, that's a great thing to get. As a believer, say, oh, freshness, newness. Not a new thing that changes Christianity overall. It changed me. And now when life comes at me, I go, oh, I know how to screen that one. I know how to feel that. I know what to respond here. And that's uh, the transformation we're after, that moment. Some people call it the aha moment, right? You go, aha. Oh, That's all we say to explain it. What happened? Oh, because something just goes off and clicks and life is transformed. And it's coming from the outside, but the transformation punches on the inside. and You go, oh, the heart grasps it. And so when a guy like Dave Ogren comes in our meetings last week and says to us, you got to love your enemies and pray for those that despitefully use you. And uh, and there's going to come a breakthrough where bitterness leaves and you're actually loving your enemies, that we can actually get a hold of that and say, you know, that's true. I've been there. I've done it. Now I'm going to work on the rest of the enemies. But at least with this one. You know, he talked about being able to go to to his worst enemy's grave after the guy died and stand over the casket and say, I'm so glad that we got this forgiveness thing done and I'm not bitter and I'm not angry and I can stand over this guy's casket as he departs and say that I prayed for him and I actually loved him. Where in, earlier in his life, all he wanted to do was shoot him and kill him. Literally, he told him. He said, if I had a gun when you did what you did to me, I would have killed you. That's how bad it was. That was pretty radical. Going from putting him in the grave to setting him in the grave. Let me give you four biblical characters this morning that I think will help us approach the issue of how to prepare our hearts for transformation. Just like you prepare a garden. You know, all the hard work comes first, and the hoeing, and the weeding, and the digging, and the scraping, and the getting the rocks out, and all that. You're getting it ready, but your goal is to plant something in there that becomes fruitful. So I'm saying, God, how can I begin to prepare my heart for what's coming 
between now and the end of the year in our ministry time together. The first one's Moses. And I call this guy the prepared transformation. I need to underline that myself right there. Prepared. The prepared transformation. Exodus chapter 3, and I'm just going to refer to these and probably not read a lot because there's some lengthy passages that you could cover, but verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3. The life of Moses unfolds in front of us, and here's a little guy that was set aside from his birth, right? He was birthed, and he was hidden, and he should have been killed, drowned in the river when uh, Pharaoh's daughter found him in the little basket, in the little ark. should have just pushed that thing to the bottom and killed him because that was the edict of the Pharaoh, kill all the Israelite boys. But God had a plan for his life, right? And so God redeemed him out of the Jordan, or yeah, out of the, the Nile, excuse me. And uh, I better forget geography today, too. <laughs> Not trying to embarrass myself totally. So far in Greek, now in geography. What class did I pass? <laughs> Not sure. Raised in Pharaoh's house for 40 years, and, and the call of God on his life was to be the deliverer for Israel, right? to deliver them from Egypt. And so one day he's out and he sees an Egyptian hurting an Israelite and he grabs that Egyptian and he kills him and stuffs him in the sand and delivers the Israelite. I mean, the action of what he's called to do actually happens. It's in him to deliver Israel and it's premature, but he, he takes on this Egyptian and he kills him and stuffs him in the sand and buries him and goes off. The next day he comes out and he sees two Israelites fighting and he says, hey, guys, come on, you're brothers. You shouldn't be disagreeing like this and fighting. And they, they step back and one says, well, are you going to do to me what you did to the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses goes, woo, the, mess, the news is out that I did the Egyptian. I'm in, I'm in trouble. I mean, because you don't do that around here. And so he takes off into the backside of the desert. He takes off from home, what he knows. He separates himself from Egypt and the Israelites, his people. And for the next 40 years of his life, he's on the what we call the backside of the desert, going through more process, going through more preparation by God until one day, toward the end of that 40 years, he's watching his father-in-law's sheep. He's got a family now. He's married, got kids, and he's out doing the shepherding thing. He's being faithful to his father-in-law. And as he's walking, he sees this bush that's on fire. And the scripture says he looks at it and goes, wow, this is curious. This fire, this bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's not burning up. I think I'll turn aside and take a look at what's happening. And the voice, the angel of the Lord, who's bringing this revelation to him in the bush, says, don't come any closer. Don't step over here. In fact, you need to take your sandals off your feet because the ground you're standing on is holy. I'm in the house. God's in the house. And don't, don't come any closer. You need to be holy. This is a holy moment. And then God goes on to explain to him, that he's called, this is his purpose in life, this is what he's supposed to do. Israel's been crying out, and God's heard the cries, and he's going to answer their cries and send a deliverer, and Moses, it's you. You're going to go and deliver my people. You're going to go in there and do all these things, and Moses negotiates a little bit and says, I can't do it, I can't talk, I don't do well with that stuff. Uh, I'm not your guy. And he says, no, I'm going to send Aaron with you, and it's going to be okay. But you're the guy. And in this moment comes transformation for Moses. He is what I call the prepared transformation. In other words, God took him from birth and all through his life was fashioning him, readying him for 80 years for this moment when he would stand in front of that burning bush and transformation would come to his life. He would no longer be the old Moses. He's going to be the new deliverer. And then for the next 40 years, God uses him to transform history literally transformed the history of the world because of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. He comes to the supernatural confrontation with God, and in that confrontation, God says, there's two things I'm going to require in this moment of the transformation of your life. One is holiness. Two is obedience. How can I prepare my heart? How can you prepare your heart for transformation in the same way? And in fact, God may have you in a process right now. He's preparing you. 
He may have called you out when you were young. And maybe you're still waiting to find out what it is God's going to use you for. And there's this anticipation. At some point, if you're a prepared transformation like Moses, then God is going to reveal himself to you in such a way that the next day, life is going to change in a radical way. I call him the prepared transformation. He was called to trust and obey. Some of us know the song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Holiness and obedience. And Moses was ready for the challenge, and he said, I will. Took his sandals off, did what God said was required to produce or to show holiness in the moment, and then began to obey, and God used him incredibly. How about King David, number two? King David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, also Psalm 51, and 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. These will be the reference points. Samuel the prophet is mourning the death of Saul, or the uh, obedient, disobedience of Saul, and, and uh, God says to him, I've got a new king, I want you to go anoint him. I want you to go to the house of Jesse and anoint one of his sons king. And so the prophet goes down to Jesse's house and says, we're going to anoint one of your kids as king today. I want them all to pass by. And so in they come. The first one comes in, he's real tall and handsome. And and Samuel, the prophet, the guy that's in tune with God, the reason he came there is because God's talking to him. And he comes there and he looks at this guy and he says, oh, there, that's, that must be him. He's pretty good looking, he's tall, he's handsome, and he's strong, and that must be the one. And God speaks to his heart and says, hey, wait a second, time out, that's not the one. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God is looking on the heart. I've got somebody in process here, and I call David my process transformation. I've got somebody in process that I'm transforming, and that's not him. I'm looking for a heart. And all the sons pass by, and it's none of them. And he turns to Jesse and says, Do you have any more sons? It has to be one of them, none of these. So I got one more. He's out with the sheep. Well, bring him in. We're not going to sit down until we, we, we see him. And in comes David. Here comes David. He's 15 years old, approximately. Hey, young people, you think you're, you know, you're never too young. We got little Samuels. We got little Davids right next door over here. They're not too young. He comes in and he takes his horn of oil and he pours it on David's head and pronounces that he's going to be the king of Israel, a 15-year-old, <laughs> in front of his brothers and his dad. You think that wasn't a startling event? Even for David. But why? Because God said, I've got this young man in a process right now. He's the one that's been out with the sheep. You guys probably don't see it. The family might not even know what happens. But when he's out there with me, He's just him and the sheep and his little dulcimer there and he's singing and worshiping and you know if the bear comes and steals the sheep he kills the bear. If a lion comes he kills the lion. He knows his task. I've got him in this process. I am training up a king and a prophetic leader. He's a shepherd. He's a faithful son. He's a worshiper. He's a psalmist. You know we have the Psalms which is the Israeli worship book. It's the hymnal for Jews and he wrote most of it. These psalms to God. We call him the sweet psalmist. Took three anointings in the process. He was anointed then, then he was anointed king again by Israel, or by Judah, and then later by all of Israel and Judah. He took three anointings from the moment of his calling to become king of all of Israel in this process. And here he is riding on top of the world, king over all his enemies. He's defeated everybody, and he's got it down. And the second Samuel chapter 11 says, There came a time in the year when all the kings go out to war, and David stayed home. And David gets in trouble, doesn't he? He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he finds out she's married, so he kills her husband. He's an he's a adulterer, he's a murderer, he's a liar. And then comes the prophet Nathan. And puts his finger right in his nose, or his chest, or however you want to see it. I see this cannon-sized finger on the end of a prophet myself. You know, he tells him this story, and David gets all in a huff and says, We're going to get that guy that did that. And Nathan gave him the illustration, just a finger, you know, like that big, like a sausage, you know. You are the man. You're the guilty party. 
in this story I just told you. And we get Psalm 51 out of this where David says, immediately, I've sinned. He didn't say I got caught sinning. He said, I sinned. And the prophet has put my sin in front of me. Now I can say, listen, it didn't happen that way, Nathan. You got the wrong guy. Listen, it was, it was born fine. I'm the king. I'm on top of the world. I can do whatever I want to do. He didn't defend himself. He humbled himself. So much so and so quickly that we have the record of scriptures that says, God says this about David. It says, I found a man after my own heart. A murderer, a liar, a cheat, an adulterer is a guy that's after God's heart. Well, yeah, those things aren't the things God's after. He's after the repentant heart. He's after the man that's been in process since he was 15 out with the sheep, learning to sing and worship and entertain an audience of one. He says, that's my guy. I've been working on him all his life. So in the moment when he's been wayward and he's been rebuked, he instantly comes to repentance and returning to God. And here we have a man that's transformed all throughout his life in process repeatedly over and over. Maybe that's your life. Maybe you go through this process of transformation. How about Paul the Apostle? I call Paul the Apostle the instant transformation. I mean, this guy's Saul. We first pick him up, he's standing at a stone for Stephen, the Christian man, the way, the way follower, the Jesus guy. And the Jews are stoning him to death. And Saul says, hey, guys, uh, it's a little hard throwing those rocks with your jackets on. Let me hold your jackets. And I consent to this. Let me hold all the stuff. They piled their jackets at Saul's feet, and he, can, he said, I, I'm, I'm for this. Kill this guy. He's against what we believe in. He's against Judaism. He's preaching some new thing, and we don't want to hear it. In fact, when this is over, and Saul goes, and he starts hauling people into jail. He gets letters from the high priest to haul people into jail. Persecute. The church scatters because of this guy. He is, I mean, it would be like right in this room, bringing this big hammer down in the middle and, and watching us all scatter. Persecution's hot. People are dying because of their faith. And that's not enough. So he goes to the high priest and says, give me letters to go to Damascus and do this some more. And he gets the letters and he's on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Bright light shines all around him. Boom! Puts him on the ground. And the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm the Lord Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Now, Christians, we need to take a little moment of comfort in here. Jesus didn't say to him, you're picking on my people. You're picking on my kids. You're, why are you hurting those people? He said, why are you persecuting me? You are his body. You are intimately connected to Jesus. He defends you and I because we are him. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're, it's clear in Scripture. We're part of his, his whole makeup. And so Jesus said, when you hurt mine, you're hurting me. I, I take comfort in that. I'm not going to go through anything that Jesus doesn't know about. Why are you persecuting me? What do you want me to do? He asks. And Jesus says, go into town, and it will be told you what to do. And so he goes. He, he gets up. As he stands up, the Bible says he opens his eyes, but he can't see anything. He's blind. And so they take him by the hand and lead him into town. He's blind. He's helpless. He's come to the end of himself. How do I prepare my heart for transformation? God, bring me to the end of myself. God, don't allow me to be the, the, the one that's always charging and telling everybody what to do and going first because I can see what I've decided to do and I can see and God says, I'm taking your eyesight away and you are now helpless. You're not hopeless, but you're helpless. You need somebody to lead you. You're no longer in charge. You're going to come to the end of yourself. And I say, God, bring me to the end of myself. Self is a rascal, isn't he? Isn't she? Self is a rascal. Saul for three days in Acts chapter 9, there is, verse 9 says, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. I want to submit to you that 
Well, let me just read. It says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord had said in a vision, Ananias, he responded, I'm here, Lord. Arise, go into the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he is praying. Now let me, let me lift this up to us. Three days, no food, no water, blind, and praying. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like prayer with fasting. How do you prepare your heart for transformation? How do you prepare your heart for the moment when God wants to break through and bring revelation to you that will absolutely change your future and your life? Prayer and fasting. Now, most of us don't like that word. You know, fast is a four-letter word. What happens when we fast? What happens when we go without supporting the the natural man? Oh, man, he rebels. He gets up and screams and yells. You know, all kinds of things happen. Uh, headaches, especially if you're a coffee drinker. You know, you go through that. And But what happens is the spirit man gets on top. I, I tend to think of it in my terms because I'm visual and I have to grasp a hold of these things and hold, get them. I tend to think almost in like schizophrenia. You know, it's like there's two people living inside this body. There's one that wants to just live by the flesh and eat and have whatever it wants and take care of me. And the spirit man keeps going, bang, and hitting him in the forehead with his elbow. Get back there. Get down. It's not your turn. It's our turn. And, you know, it's amazing. After about three days, if you've ever fasted for any length of time, after about three days, you're really not hungry anymore. And the old carnal nature's going, are you going to feed me? And the spirit man says, no. I'm not going to be mean to you anymore, but I'm just not going to feed you. Okay. <laughs> but he doesn't get up very much anymore. He just says, you know, I, and I, I personalize this, and I, I see the old man saying, you know what, we better be quiet. He may never feed us. <laughs> He's in charge. So we better not raise a ruckus, or he may extend this. Let's just chill and get in line. And the, and the flesh man gets in line. And the spirit man just really blossoms and comes alive. And you know, you, you pray and it's like you hear God. It's like that. You read the word and it's as though somebody's training you while it's happening. Your spirit man's just going, taking all that in. Here's Paul, Saul at the time. No food, no drink, no sight at the end of himself. I mean, the guy's helpless, isn't he? He's buried himself in some chair in this place he doesn't even know. He's out of sorts. He's, not, he's got all the letters and no power. And Ananias comes in and says, Brother Saul, which tells me if we interpret the scripture that way, Saul had been converted on the road. His faith was now in Jesus. And Ananias comes and says, Brother Saul, God told me to come lay my hands on you so that you could be healed and receive the Holy Spirit. Praise for him. Scales fall off his eyes. He sees again. And immediately he's baptized. So here's a guy that in... Just a three-day period has a major confrontation with the living God. Goes into fasting and prayer. And helplessness removes self. And then responds to the spiritual growth that is available to him by saying, I will be obedient and be baptized into Jesus. I'm now a follower and I'm, going, and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been through baptism of the Holy Spirit, water baptism, healing and confrontation from a living God. That, to me, even those three days, is an instant transformation. And it bears out. He ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament, planting churches everywhere. His whole life radically changed. And, by the way, by the end of the day on when he was healed, he was hanging out with the disciples in Damascus. He got into the church and got into fellowship. That's, that's instant transformation. Is that what you want? I, I don't know. Am I willing to pay a three-day price? It may be more... Some of us shy back from saying, God, I want transformation, but I'm not sure I want it that bad. I just like a dollar ninety-eight of Jesus. <laughs> you know, just enough to be sweet on my tongue and keep me happy, but not enough that it requires total commitment. You know, you're like the chicken and the pig. You know, they saw the sign at the edge of town that said, Fundraiser. <clears throat> Uh, ham and egg breakfast. And the chicken said, we should go down there and hang out. <laughs> and the pig says, that's easy for you to say. For you, it's just a donation. 
for me, it's total commitment. The instant transformation, waiting upon God. I'm now at his command. I'm blind, I'm helpless. I'm at the end of myself. I'm going to fast. I'm going to drain out self. And I'm going to be empowered by the Spirit of God. And I'm going to pray. When I ask the question, how can I prepare my heart for transformation in the ensuing weeks from now? These are some of the things we can do. You may elect to fast. And say, God, this week I need you to transform me. I need you to bring new understanding and revelation to my spirit, man, that will help me screen all of life. It'll help me know how to handle my home. Help me know how to live as a teenager. Help me know how to do well in school and and be a Christian and stand up for what I believe. How to be a good grandparent. Whatever role you have, God, transform me. And you may elect to take off a couple of meals in a day or take a three-day fast and and separate yourself into the Word and say, okay, God, now, now hammer me. Get me. Here I am. And if you've uh, ever fasted, if you've never fasted, let me assure you this. There are times when you fast that during the period of your fasting, it can be a lot of work and difficult and very rewarding. But the results will come after. You know, you say, oh, I'm fasting. Nothing's happening. I feel dead. You know, nothing's going on. Hey, the results are happening. It's working. Live by faith. I know they've been involved in meetings where we fasted going into the meetings, but on the day the meetings would start for the ministry that would take place, we would break our fast, take on nourishment and strength so we could get through the things we were going to do, and then we'd see the unfolding and the answers to that fasting and prayer during the the ensuing days. So you do it by faith. You can choose to do it, I guess, or you can have God show up and just knock you to the ground (laughs) like Paul. But one more. Can I do one more? How about Peter? Peter, I call it, when we talk about transformation, Peter for me is the construction project. You know, Moses was that prepared transformation, got him ready, and then boom, became the deliverer. And when I say transformation, what I'm saying is this the next day, shortly thereafter, the moment, life changes for you. Things are very, very different. You don't live like you used to. I'm sure Moses went back with the sheep, got his sheep, went back to Jethro and said, hey, tomorrow's going to be different because I have to go and fulfill my destiny. I'm no longer just a shepherd on the backside of the desert. All my preparation brought me to this transformation moment, and now I'm being launched into what God wants to use me in. David, that process was happening all the time. Saul, instantaneous radical change. And then we get to Peter. Peter, the construction project. We've got Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 26, and John 21, and Acts chapter 2. And there's no way you can write all that down that quickly, I understand. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, You are Simon. You know what that means? You know how names are significant in the Bible? Well, let me ask you this. He says, you're Simon, but from now on on, we're going to call you Peter. What does Peter mean? Yeah, we know that rock, Petra, the rock. And in fact, that verse, he goes on, it's recorded for us, he says, on this rock I'll build my church, right? What does Simon mean? Shifty, sandy, unstable. There's a corner I drive around near my house that's got sand all in it where it's pushed to one side. And I noticed just yesterday... As I was turning, and my tire was on sand, I could feel the car kind of just wiggle as it went over that sand. I thought, oh, there's Simon. It's a little shifty. He said, you're Simon. You were born and named. You've been shifty and unstable and radical, and you're in and out, and you're, you're just not too stable. But I call you Peter. And on this rock, because Peter said, you're the Christ. Who, who am I? You're the Christ. You got that revelation from God, Simon. And that revelation has come now to transform you from being shifty to being the rock. And this rock, this revelation, this understanding that has come to you is where I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
They cannot withstand what the church will do and what I will do in the world. That's verses 17, 18, and 19 of chapter 16. And you go, wow, the construction project. You know, it started back when he said, they dropped their nets and said, follow me. Right? Two verses later, just two verses. Some time has gone by, of course, but just two verses later is when Jesus is saying that he's going to be denied, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be killed. Uh, And uh, it says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Didn't Jesus like him? Sure he liked him. He loved him. What's happening? Here you have the Lord, if you can get a picture of this. Here's the Lord saying, this is how it's going to be. And Peter, full of self, runs around in front of him and says, No, it's not going to be that way. You ever tell God how it's going to be? You know, like he didn't know. We've all done it. We let self get in front of the Lord. The Lord says, It's going to be like this. We go, No, I'm going to do it my way, or I'm going to do something else, or it's not going to be like that. I'm, I don't agree. Kind of sound, kind of sound, well, could be twins. (laughs) That'll be a strange thing on the recording, won't it? What are they doing? We're just going to the nursery. So he gets self in front of the lordship of Jesus, and immediately Jesus says, get behind me. There's a good positional instruction right there. Self needs to be behind the Lord, not in front. Peter, this construction project continues. I mean, you're just a knothead. He's hammering away on this person that he loves. And in the next chapter, he grabs Peter, James, and John and says, Guys, let's go for a walk up this mountain. What happens up there? We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father starts speaking. The place is filled with clouds and glory. Moses and Elijah show up. And all this is going on. And Peter, what does Peter do? Oh, it's sure a good thing you brought us. We can build the places for everybody to sleep. <laughs> kind of sort of missed the moment. I'm not sure I would have done or you would have done any better. But nonetheless, here's Peter doing his impetuous thing. It's a good thing I'm here. I can help. And, uh, and then the voice from heaven comes and plants him on his face on the ground. He goes, Man, God's here. <laughs> and Jesus comes over and lifts him up and says, it's, all, it's okay, Peter. And he gets up and there's nothing there. It's all gone. They saw Jesus transfigured in front of them. By the way, this word transfigured used for the person of Jesus is the same metamorpho. I got it almost. <laughs> it's actually a-o. Anyway, Jesus went through a metamorphosis, a transformation right in front of them. We call it a transfiguration. The glory of God hit him, and there it was. And, and Jesus saying, it's okay, Peter. Don't freak out. We're good. Just chipping away at you. You need to live and see that this is well above the natural. There's a realm, Peter, that you haven't entered yet. This is the realm of the supernatural. This is where I live. This is where the Father and I hang out. This is where you're going to be soon. You're going to be dealing in things like this. And, and we're going to do more of this, Peter. But, you know, take it under your hat. Let it form in you. Because you're my little construction project. By the time we get to Matthew 26... Jesus says, one of you is going to deny me. Of course, Peter says, never me. (laughs) Man, I'll die with you before that happens. And Jesus turns and says, would you? Really? Peter, before the sun comes up, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And I'm sure that that Peter that would run around and get in front of the Lord is still saying, no, not me. Jesus, you got it wrong. And then comes morning. And Peter's saying to the last group, I'm telling you, I have no clue who this guy is. The Bible records this, and it just strikes right into my heart. It says he turns and looks at Jesus. He's right there. 
Jesus is incarcerated. Peter's close by. And the rooster's crowing. And it hits him. And he looks. And they have eye contact. I don't believe that Jesus looked at him with any kind of condemnation or disdain. He must have looked at him and said, You have yet to find out how much I love you. And it said, Peter, realizing what he had done, ran out of the place and wept bitterly. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a bitter weeping session, but it is no fun to sob and to empty yourself out, knowing that you have just done the most horrid thing. And Peter does this. And Jesus, with all that's on his plate at the moment, is saying, the master carpenter's got a construction project and he's still not done. Jesus is crucified, buried, raised from the dead. Peter's, there's no record of Peter being at the cross, if you haven't ever checked that out. It's my understanding that he had this moment with Jesus, this eye contact, and he went out. And the next time he sees Jesus is in this moment. He's kicking rocks and he doesn't know what to do. And he's, what have I done? I'm just a mess up and should have stayed Sandy. Should have stayed Simon. Why did he call me Peter? I don't know it. And you and I have done this when we've been in depressed or lonely or rigorous times, whatever the case might be, we, we kind of go back to what we know. Right? Peter says, I'm just going to go fishing. Some of the guys say, we'll go with you. They fish all night, they don't catch a thing. What a bummer for a fisherman. Sun's coming up, beautiful little Sea of Galilee, and some guy's on the beach yelling at him. Hey guys, did you catch anything out there? No. Well, why don't you throw your nets on the other side? Now, John's in the boat with Peter. The writer, John. Maybe under his breath, he sort of leans over and goes, haven't we somewhere before? Does that sound familiar? Didn't we do this once? Maybe we ought to do the net thing. Let's do it. We did it that last time. So they throw the nets out. They're hauling in this thing of fish and John looks right at Peter and says it's him that's the only way this happens it's the Lord Peter strips off his coat dives into the water and swims to shore I love this part I mean, we're talking Michael Phelps here we're talking Olympic moments I mean, I think the scriptures record they're like 100 to 200 meters out. So that's a pretty good swim. Strips off. He doesn't even ask any questions. He just says, if it's him, i got to go. Plunges in, swims to shore. The other guys finally get there. They haul all the fish up. The barbecue's underway. And Jesus says, John chapter 21. When they had eaten breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, I don't know how it goes. I, I read the scriptures when I get them like they're alive to me. He didn't say Peter. He said Simon, son of Jonah. Peter might have been in his heart saying, I'm so glad he put me back. He demoted me. He understands I'm shifty and shaky. He knows me. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. 
And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Full circle. All the way back to the nets. St. Peter, you denied me three times. I know that. I was there. I told you it would happen. But I had my hammer on you and I was tooling away. And what you've been through is pretty rough. But I want you to know that I've restored you in all three points. And we like to point this out when we're preaching. Three failures. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? With the equal commands of saying, take care of my flock. He's restored him on all those points of failure. And God will restore us on our points of failure as well. If we'll be as honest as Simon and say to the Lord, you know me. You know I'm shifty. I'm a failure. You know how I was when you called me, but you know I love you. And I will do everything I can do forever. If you'll work it in me. If you'll transform me. Jesus finishes and says, follow me. Which for me says this. Peter, the day I called you and said, come follow me. I never, ever changed my mind. (laughs) The call is still the same. But the transformation has taken some time. And you are now a transformed man. I've been chipping and hammering and took you to supernatural events. And I stayed with you. We slept. We ate. You denied me. I told you you would. And I never backed up on my call on your life. But it did take transformation to get to this point. And I'm restoring you because I love you and I want you to take care of my sheep. Jesus resurrects. He's gone. Ten days later, they're in Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, first time the church is established. And who stands up and starts preaching? None other than Shifty. None other than the unstable man who has been transformed by the power of God and come out entirely different and now stands up filled with the power of God with that impetuous spirit tempered. I mean, this is the guy that lopped off the other guy's ear at the, you know. <clears throat> and now he stands up. The transformation, the, co- the construction project is over. It's almost like on the beach, Jesus took out his finish hammer, (laughs) guys. And he pulled out those little finish nails and he said, Peter, do you love me? I just need to put this trim on. I just need to finish this one side and polish that up. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Don't you love it, guys, when the thing is done? You finally finished the project. And it's the way you want it. And you sand it out. Finished. And you go, there it is. And Jesus said, it's done. Fill him with the Holy Ghost and we're going. Peter stands up and preaches what I call the first Holy Ghost sermon. And 3,000 people get saved. That is transformation of a life. How about you? How about me? We've been called out of the world. We've been separated to Jesus. We're either in a, a prepared transformation, using this this morning, we're, we're either being prepared for the moment when that's going to happen, we're in a process of regular transformation that leads to leadership. Some of us have had those instant transformational moments in our lives where we can go back to a calendar date and say, on that day, God got me. And maybe you're the construction project. And you just need a little hope today to know that God's got a finish hammer. He is the master craftsman. He is the carpenter of all carpenters. And he will not finish with you until he's done. He will never say, ah, this one's too tough. Let's start something else. He won't do it. But how can you and I prepare our hearts then for transformation? Well, Let's just pick a few of the things we've seen here. How about serving faithfully in whatever it is you're doing? How about prayer and fasting? How about being in the Word and through worship like David? How about being active in your pursuit of your faith? Jesus said about him, the zeal of his father's house had eaten him up. How about being full of zeal for the Lord? How about yielding to his plans and surrendering yours? 
How about just coming back <laughs> regularly so that he can take a few more strokes on you if you're the process or you're the construction project? Just keep presenting yourself because there's more to be done. But I, I think it does start with this. We have to desire it. We have to want it. And if we want it, like children, what do children do when they want something? They ask, can I have it? When can I have it? Can I get it now? You know? Now! Well, we're his children. He has something we know for us. There's a transformation you want to bring in my life, and I just want to say, Father, I would like to have it. If you'll give it to me, I want to have it. I would like transformation. I would like spiritual revelation. I would like to go through that metamorphosis so that tomorrow lives differently than today. Let's ask him together. Father, wow, I thank you for these guys who went before us and gave us some tracks to run on. But we're asking this morning, you, our Heavenly Father, to complete the work you've begun in us. We're asking for the transformation to come. We're inviting the results at any time that you want to produce in us. Jesus, we call you Lord. And we want that to be an actuality, not just a, a, a word or a, a sentence. We want to have our lives under your authority. We want self behind the Lordship of Jesus. And so we ask that you would begin to prepare our hearts for transformation in the following weeks and months that we spend together pursuing you and pursuing truth and allowing you to build into us a biblical worldview that will become a screen for living. We ask in Jesus' name, because you said if we'd ask in his name, coming through his work, that we could have what we asked for. And we are asking according to your will that we would be transformed into your image, the image of your Son. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and keep working on us. While your eyes are closed and we're praying together, I want to just, as I said, come back to the moment and say, perhaps you came today and you're looking for Jesus. Well, interestingly enough, he's been looking for you too. And he's called you to this day to meet with him personally and to know him. You've heard today that he loves us. You understand that he went to the cross and died for your sins. And he is extending his heart to you and saying, I love you. I want you to understand I can forgive you and take away your past. I can give you a new life. But he must ask the question, is that what you want? If it's what you want today and you're, you're in pursuit of Jesus and you want him to come into your life and bring this transformation, this initial work of forgiving you and granting you the gift of eternal life, would you just slip up your hand so that I can pray for you? And we'll pray together. we surrender to Jesus. Thank you. God bless you. You can put your hands down. That's fine. Thank you. Church, can we pray together for these that have lifted their hands before the Lord? They're, they're signifying to him. That they want Jesus to come fully into their hearts. Let's pray. And you that raised your hands, would you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I acknowledge you as Lord. I am a sinner. I need you to save me. Save me from my sin. Remove my past. Give me a brand new start. Welcome me into your family. Help me to live for you. I repent. I don't want to live against you any longer. I surrender. Give me a hunger to understand your word and your ways. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me the power to live this new life. I thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
And with that prayer, you begin a walk with Jesus that will transform your future. You want to mark the day down and say, this is the day that I was opening my heart to Jesus and he came in and he began a work on me that will never end until I'm with him forever in heaven. And we welcome you to the family. And uh, just say to you, if you're not attending one of our small cell groups, get in one now. I think most of you are. Get in one now and get alongside the family and, and grow up in Jesus, okay? Don't stay babies. Amen. Thank you for your extra time this morning. You've been very kind to me by listening to the end. Have a great day.